1: And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything, yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery, Mystery of everything. everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's you here. And I'm Gabby.
0: And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
0: Hi there, my name is Derek, and I'm the
1: host of the Hellenistic Age Podcast, a history show covering Alexander the Great to Cleopatra. If you can't get enough discussion about ancient history, you can follow me as well in my journey through
0: 300 years and 5,000 miles of the Hellenistic Age. From the Library of Alexandria to the Greek kings of India, you can find these and more by looking for the podcast on the platform of your choice or by heading to www.hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com. How heavy weighs my lord! knew it would end this way Mark Antony dead on the floor of your elegant mausoleum Still warm and bleeding in your arms You weep yourself hollow while the waves murmur to themselves outside And your women sit with their heads bowed But when you raise your eyes, they're dry You'd known he was doomed Known all these painful weeks after the debacle of Actium Known each time you looked into his dear, earnest face Every time the two of you reached for each other in the dark Now he's gone, and it's down to you and Octavian you still have one blade to hold to the Empire's throat. Octavian wants your riches, and he'll do anything to get them. You want a life for your children any way you can get it. You took precautions long ago, sent your son Caesarion out of his reach, squirreled your treasure away in this mausoleum stuffed to the gills with kindling. If Octavian won't promise their future, you'll bar the doors and burn this place down with everything in it, and you won't be sorry. You rise to your feet as your women wail, and you go to the window. The horizon is blue and vast, a mockery. You tried all the escape routes long ago. One by one, they failed you, all but one. Mark Antony made his last stand and failed in spectacular fashion, but you've always had your own weapons, much different than his. Soon you and Octavian will face each other across a genteel dining table and you will have your own last stand. And then what? You glance down at Mark Antony, the ruin he's made of his guts, his face so calm in death, smoothed of all worries. He's taken the sun and moon with him, taken everything worth fighting for. Who can say what fate Octavian has in mind for you? But one way or another, you'll follow the man you chose. He won't have to wait long. You're coming. I'm Jenny Williamson.
1: And I'm Mark Kemp, Count Past 12, Antony.
0: And this is Ancient History Fangirl. The drunken Antony and Cleopatra, lovers
1: in a dangerous time where we'll miss them forever, on my chest tattooed edition.
0: I wanted to honor our poor fallen ones. We both have booze with us because it's our last episode about Cleopatra and Mark Antony, and we pour one out. That we do. We're going to miss these two. We are. What are you drinking, Jen? I am drinking Marks & Spencer brand
1: Californian pink wine here in London.
0: I'm drinking Austin East Ciders, which is a, it's like a giant 40-sized can. I saw that in the supermarket. I was like, that is a Mark Antony-sized can of booze right there. (laughs) This is what I need at like. Two o'clock in the afternoon so that it doesn't run too late for (laughs) Jan.
1: I'm also not dissolving any pearls into my booze tonight. Sorry, Cleo.
0: I mean, if I was dissolving pearls, they would be 100% plastic pearls. I don't know. You can get some cheap
1: freshwater pearls, I think.
0: Or cultured pearls? I don't think I even have cultured pearls. I'm classy like that.
1: It might be that cultured pearls are more expensive in freshwater or cheaper. I don't know. I haven't done the research.
0: We know nothing about pearls, okay? <laughs> so we're
1: going to move on. In our last episode, Mark Antony and Cleopatra finally went to fight the Battle of Actium against Octavian and Agrippa. And let's just say it didn't go well.
0: It didn't go well for Antony and Cleopatra. I mean... <laughs> oh yeah, it
1: went swimmingly for Octavian and Agrippa.
0: I mean, they did great. They didn't even get scratched. They were fine. They were like, we came, we saw, we actammed. We
1: did not flail. We did not flail. Mark Antony came, I saw, I flailed
0: definitely flailed
1: on that end. It ended with Cleopatra fleeing the scene of a naval battle, Mark Antony jumping into his fastest ship to go after her, abandoning a massive navy and land army, and his entire force surrendering to Octavian.
0: We talk about the reasons Cleopatra may have fled the Battle of Actium and why Mark Antony went after her in the previous episode. Suffice it to say that we have more questions than answers. But eventually, Mark Antony caught up to Cleopatra, boarded her ship, and spent three days brooding in the prow. Whatever their reasons, something had gone spectacularly against plan in that battle, and for three days, Mark Antony and Cleopatra couldn't even bear to look at each other.
1: Finally, Cleopatra and Mark Antony came ashore on a flat stretch of beach along the deserted northwestern coast of Egypt, and there they separated. Cleopatra went ahead to Alexandria and she moved fast because she had to outrace news of her own defeat. If the differing factions in her court found out she and Antony had lost, she might find herself returning to face assassination or insurrection. Cleopatra knew she couldn't give a hint that anything was wrong when she arrived in Alexandria. She wreathed her ships in flowers, stationed flute players and singers on her decks, singing victory songs, and sailed into the bay at Alexandria with her head held high and not a hair out of place, And the minute she landed, before anyone could hear the news of the ruinous defeat, she fired up a round of bloody prescriptions everyone at court whose loyalty she doubted got his throat cut or poison in his wine.
0: Antony, meanwhile, went to Libya. He'd left four legions there and now he needed them. But when he arrived, he found his legions had defected to Octavian. His friends had to persuade him not to kill himself. When Antony returned to Alexandria, he found Cleopatra in a frenzy of manic activity. She'd beheaded Artavastes, who'd been held in an Alexandrian prison for the past three years, and sent his head to one of his rivals in hopes of earning his support, because this is the tallest love language. Severed limbs. Absolutely. We've talked about this a lot. The gesture failed. So Cleopatra set her sights on far off India, thinking to sail far away from war and enslavement. Her vision was grand and far reaching. Stacy Schiff says, quote, in a blind alley, it seemed Cleopatra's nature to envision broad, unbounded horizons. The grandiosity and bravado were staggering. I mean, this is why we have this podcast. Is it not, Jen? Because I do the same thing. My mom had cancer and I was one of her primary caretakers. And I was doing all this grandiose thinking And I was also taking care of my mom's horse And I was like, I'm gonna enter all these competitions And win all these horse shows And I'm gonna win all these blue ribbons That was one delusion And the other one was, um... I'm going to go get my MFA. There was also the Viking longship.
1: Oh, yeah, that was my favorite. Jenny was going to run away and row across to Scandinavia in a Viking longship.
0: And this wasn't unreal. Like I had been to this. um, It's like they called it a regatta, but it wasn't really a race. It was just kind of a sailing get together with a bunch of people. My dad is a he builds sailboats. Captain Tom. Is a sailboat enthusiast. Historic wooden boat enthusiast. We did like a sort of gathering of historic wooden boat enthusiasts up in Maine. And there were a bunch of people there who were kind of members of the tall ship community and knew people who were on these historic long ships crewing them. And I was just like, I'm going to do that. The biggest one is the Harold Hardradra. I know I'm screwing that up, which was parked in Mystic for a long time. I'm not sure where it is now, but I went to visit it in Mystic and tried to get the um, expedition planner to take me on. And he took one look at me and my purple hair and my zero tall ship sailing experience and was like uh no and your scrawny arms right (laughs) not gonna lie I'm sure I was like you look like Octavian arms you can't come on the long ship Octavian the reality
1: is our nickname for Jenny me and a few of our college friends was Jenny Patra because really Jenny could convince most people to do most things so I don't know what happened there
0: Jenny Patra I'm a shoe in I'm already one glass of wine in. My next glass is of water. I've just had a few sips of my massive margantony-sized can.
1: I mean, I love that you think that I wasn't drinking while freaking out over the internet problem. Anyway.
0: All fun things that happen behind the scenes, (laughs) (laughs) ancient history fangirl. I'm just saying, like, I I really deeply relate to the manic grandiosity when you're in a desperate place. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I think Cleopatra is the sort of person who must keep going. Like, there is no stopping. If I stop, that's it. I'm done. And Antony is one of those people who's like, I'm
0: so overwhelmed by everything in front of me. And I'm like, I get it. Jen so relates to Mark Antony in this story, and I so relate to Cleopatra. I love it. I mean, that does not speak highly for the future of this podcast. It's all going to end in the mausoleum, (laughs) Jen. It better not. (laughs) No, we have to envision a better future. Moving on, please. So Cleopatra led a bold new project in the interest of sailing off to India. And that was to lift her entire fleet of 60 massive warships out of the Mediterranean and have them transported 40 miles over land through difficult desert terrain to be relaunched in the Red Sea. That is
1: bold, Cleo.
0: That's super bold but it was not to be. Cleopatra had
1: recently antagonized the Nabataeans, a tribe in the area, by getting them involved in a war with King Herod. It's a long story, kind of a rabbit hole. We went down it in Cleopatra and King Herod. Wouldn't touch you with the barge pole, parts one and two, but suffice it to say, they were not fans of Cleopatra. Anyway, they put the brakes on her grandiose plan. One by one, as her ships were hauled ashore, the Nabataeans set them on fire her giant portage plan in ashes. Cleopatra looked northwest. What if she and Antony tried Spain? She had heard Spain had silver mines. They could go via the Indian Ocean circumnavigating the Horn of Africa and found a new kingdom there. What did he think? Mark Antony did not want to hear any of this. He ordered a causeway built into the middle of the Alexandrian harbor. At the end of it, he had a hut built. He crawled inside and built a blanket fort.
0: He brooded over all the friends who deserted him in his time of need. He lashed himself over his grand failures. He stared out to sea and felt very sorry for himself. Finally, he let himself be coaxed back to the palace by Cleopatra.
1: That's actually medically called rumination, and it's really common in depression. Oh, I bet that's what
0: was going on.
1: He fell into a massive depression, and he was ruminating over all of his past failures, and he literally cannot get around them. Like, it's just awful when it happens. There is nothing he can do to get over it. As
0: Stacey Schiff tells us, Cleopatra now had two jobs, to figure out how to get her and Antony out of this mess and to prop Antony up. In the wake of the Battle of Actium, Antony had fallen apart. It was now down to her. He'd fallen into a deep depression. I don't want to throw around these modern terms because we can't really, as you've said before, Jen, we can't really diagnose people from thousands of years ago. We can't.
1: No, and we're not. We're also not psychiatrists.
0: Actually, not even historians. (laughs) Like... (laughs) I know whenever anyone says oh you're historians like no we're not (laughs) We can't diagnose people from thousands of years ago But I do feel like I'm seeing Cleopatra in kind of a manic state And Antony in kind of a depressive state at the moment If we were going to diagnose people Which I was like oh I'm not going to diagnose people And then I proceeded to diagnose them Sorry.
1: The thing is, that is part of the reasons why they work so well, but also we are seeing them through the lens of historians and people like Shakespeare and artists who have depicted them this way as well. So it is difficult to know.
0: I think we're also seeing them through the lens of our own experience. I think we both see ourselves in this right now. So anyway, but nobody else wanted to bet their lives on Cleopatra's grand plans. As she plotted, Cleopatra's palace emptied out at an alarming rate. Everyone, right down to her children's tutors, were defecting to Octavian. She kept it from Antony as much as possible so as not to upset him.
1: Meanwhile, Antony began to enter a new stage of grief. The stage where you throw lavish dinner parties and drink yourself into a stupor. Once again, Mark Antony dusted out his Dionysus costume and began planning elaborate feasts and bestowing extravagant gifts on his friends. Or, I guess, like the two people who were actually left in the palace at this point. You know what
0: it reminds me of? Russian doll.
1: Oh, I saw some of Russian Doll. Russian
0: Doll is kind of like, a, it's on Netflix, a really fantastic show. It's kind of like a modern Groundhog Day. And the main character keeps dying and waking up again at this birthday party that her friend is throwing her. And the party is a little bit different every time she wakes up. And it kind of empties out progressively until the only person at the party is the one throwing it, kind of dancing in the middle of this grand room. It's just this really eerie scene. And that's what this kind of reminds me of. Like everyone emptying out of Cleopatra and Mark Antony's grand palace. They have this history of the inimitable, inimitable livers. And these incredible lavish feasts with all these guests. And it gradually empties out until they're the only ones left. Yeah, it's so sad.
1: So Antony threw a coming-of-age party for his son Antillus, which means the archer, doesn't it? His real name was Antonius Antonius Antillus, right? Yeah, and his nickname was Antillus. He threw a coming-of-age party for his son, Antillus, and Cleopatra's son, Caesarean, that lasted for days. The boys were about 15 and 16 now. The imimitable Lifer's Club was dissolved. Inimitable. To be replaced by a new club called Partners in Death. I mean, it's a bit on the nose. It's a, bit, it's a bit morbid. The members of this club, quote, passed the time delightfully in a round of suppers, but it had darker purposes. They also entered into a suicide pact.
0: And here's your warning. We are going to be talking about suicide in the paragraphs coming up. Plutarch
1: tells us that now Cleopatra started getting interested in poisons, testing them on prisoners who were already sentenced to death. She noticed that the faster acting the poison, the more painful it was, and that the asp in particular delivered a death characterized by, quote, sleepy torpor and sinking, where there was no spasm or groan, but a gentle perspiration on the face. And we talk about this in more details in one of our favorite episodes, Lacusta the Poisoner.
0: Meanwhile, Octavian was back in Rome, solidifying his power for good. He knew he could pick Egypt off anytime he wanted. He wasn't in a hurry. And over the coming months, both Antony and Cleopatra sent another. of messages to Octavian to negotiate for their lives separately. Antony asked for permission to live as a private citizen in Egypt, or if that wasn't acceptable, in Athens. He reminded Octavian of their family connections, their youthful pranks as younger men, the good times they'd had before all of this went sour. Eventually, so many
1: people deserted Antony that he didn't even have anyone to send messages. So he sent his 15-year-old son Antillus to Octavian with a message and an armload of gold. Octavian took the gold and sent Antillus away without responding to his proposal. Finally... Antony offered to commit suicide if Octavian would spare Cleopatra. Like all his other proposals, it was met with stony silence. Meanwhile, Cleopatra begged Octavian via messenger to allow her to pass down her kingdom to her children. She offered to abdicate in favor of Caesarion. She even sent a golden crown, throne, and scepter, once despised emblems of kingship, to Octavian.
0: The thing was... Octavian couldn't let Caesarion rule Egypt. Caesarion had been acknowledged as Caesar's rightful son, which made him more legitimate than Octavian. That was a dangerous threat to the legion's loyalty, and giving a rival that dangerous all the power and wealth of Egypt was just asking to be overthrown. Regardless of who ruled Egypt, it was dangerous just to let Caesarian live. Publicly, Octavian bellowed his disapproval of Cleopatra, lobbing insults and threats toward Egypt. Privately, he adopted a tone of utmost reason. Cleopatra could stay if she would have Antony murdered or maybe exiled. The truth was that Cleopatra still had something Octavian wanted, her money. The Ptolemaic wealth was legendary, and Octavian wanted that wealth.
1: And Cleopatra knew it. Around this time, she ordered a stylish two-story mausoleum built for herself. And even as she negotiated with Octavian, she had all of her wealth moved into her tomb with piles of flammable kindling placed strategically everywhere. She didn't bother to hide it. The threat was clear. If she didn't get what she wanted, she wasn't so attached to her own life. She was entirely ready to go into that mausoleum with all that treasure, bar the door, and burn the whole thing down. Octavian was willing to hold out hope for Cleopatra to keep her from torching her treasure. But Antony had nothing Octavian wanted. All his entreaties were met with pointed silence. Sometimes Octavian put his emissaries to death just because he was also a dick.
0: Finally, worried that Cleopatra might be close to carrying out her threats, Octavian sent her a messenger of his own, a man named Thyrsus. That sounds like thirst trap to me. We're just going to call him thirst trap. And it's actually kind of appropriate because Thirst Trap (laughs) was eloquent, persuasive, and apparently very attractive. You know what?
1: Good strategy, Octavian.
0: Octavian, who believed there was absolutely no limit to Cleopatra's vanity, Gave Thirst Trap orders. To <laughs> thirst Trap. Orders. This is exactly what he is. Orders to flatter Cleopatra, compliment her, give her hope, and convince her that Octavian himself was madly in love with her from afar. Ugh. Dio says Octavian thought this would work because Cleopatra, quote, thought it her due to be loved by all mankind. I call bullshit. Bull fucking shit, Octavian. She did not believe a word of this. First off, Octavian didn't love anybody. This get that out there. No, no way. <laughs> Fuck that. Fuck that noise. That didn't happen. Jog on, Octavian. Forget it. But she did spend a lot of time alone with Thirst Trap. <laughs>
1: Bet she did.
0: <laughs> he was he was easy on the eyes. To be fair, at this moment,
1: Ant Antony is in a deep, if not depressive, but a deep a deep sadness where he's probably not really a lot of fun to be around. And also coming from a personal place, a lot of depressive people will isolate themselves.
0: You totally see Antony doing this. He isolates himself. Like when he's in the in the throes of the worst points of his life, that's what he does.
1: A lot of times it requires a a lot of energy just to put clothes on or brush your teeth or just to be in the world. That's where Antony is. And Cleo is the complete opposite. She's like, got to keep moving, got to keep doing things, got to keep planning, because that is a different way of coping.
0: They're both in the same spot, you know, and they're both coping very differently. And I think Cleopatra's really trying with Antony now. Like, I don't think she's avoiding him. I don't think he wants to see her.
1: I don't think he wants to see anyone. Like when you're in that deep place with the rumination and everything else, it is really, really difficult to deal with people in general.
0: Anyway, so Cleopatra was spending a lot of time with Thirst Trap, possibly because Antony was in a deep depression and was avoiding her, possibly because she was trying to find out anything she could use on Octavian. That's another thing. It might have been strategic on her part. Absolutely. So
1: all this time being spent with Thirst Trap drove Antony absolutely bonkers with jealousy. Antony had Thirst Trap, dragged out of Cleopatra's rooms, beaten and whipped, and sent back to Octavian with the message. Antony was already in a shitty mood, and Thirst Trap had irritated his absolute last nerve. If Octavian didn't like the stripes on Thirst Trap's back, he could take it out of one of the many people who defected from Antony's camp to his. And you can see a pattern here. Cleopatra and Antony weren't working together. They were talking to Octavian separately, and Octavian was trying to turn them against each other. Or at least, he was trying this on Cleopatra because remember, he wasn't talking to Antony at all. And I cannot imagine how much that must have graded Antony. The way he's treating Antony as if like actually answering him is beneath him. Oh, for an ego of a Roman general, someone who served with Julius Caesar, he must have been fuming.
0: On the other hand, when Julius Caesar left Octavian all his money, Antony took it. Yeah, Antony was like, fuck that noise. <laughs> He just, I do took it. You go all the way back. Like Octavian did have a few legitimate beefs here. Like Antony was not pure as the driven snow.
1: Octavian was legitimately pissed off. Also, you know, he's fucked off to Egypt, taken all their
0: wealth, and left his sister like the laughing stock of Rome. We could talk ourselves into siding with anyone here at Ancient History Fangirl, is what we're saying. We've got great (laughs) emotional intelligence. (laughs) I guess you could call it that. Or just we're pancakes and it's super easy to flip us.
1: So it's possible that this was all tactical, that Antony and Cleopatra had talked about it and decided they both had better chances if they tried to negotiate with Octavian separately. But Antony's raging jealousy here is a clear hint of insecurity. It's also quite possible that Cleopatra had made the cold-eyed judgment that she and her kids had better chances if she could negotiate some kind of deal separately with Octavian.
0: But Cleopatra didn't kill Mark Antony or cast him out, and she continued to do what she always had with Mark Antony, pulling out all the stops and stage managing things so he had a really good time. In these difficult months, she showered him with love and attention and comfort. Mark Antony's birthday was January 14th and when it came, she threw a massive party. He was 53. When her own 38th birthday came a few months later, she barely even celebrated. A lot of writers, especially ancient writers, paint Cleopatra as a cold, calculating woman who seduced men purely for her own benefit. And I mean, she's definitely tactical in terms of who she chooses to align herself with. I mean, let's be real. What other choice did she have? Right, she didn't have a lot of choice. But this is another point in history where Cleopatra very easily could have poisoned Mark Antony if she wanted to.
1: Yeah, she could have sorted that problem out real quickly.
0: She could have. Mark Antony was dead weight at this point. He was useless. He could bring her no more benefits in Rome. In fact, he was a liability. It would have been relatively easy for Cleopatra to take Octavian's deal and have Antony killed or exiled in exchange for her life. Antony was basically doomed, and so was she. But unlike Antony, she had a kingdom to preserve for her children. But she didn't take Octavian's deal, either because she didn't believe Octavian would hold up his end of the bargain. Likely. Right. Or because she loved Mark Antony and wanted to protect him as long as she could. Also likely.
1: Yeah, and also she wasn't born yesterday. Like, she had seen her sister walk in a triumph. She knew what happened when Roman generals win.
0: I don't think either of these options are mutually exclusive here. No.
1: Go to your happy place For a happy price Go to your happy price price Priceline I'm Helena Bonham Carter and for BBC Radio 4 this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker We'll hear of daring risk takers What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend.
0: Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: winter, Octavian built up his strength. In the summer, he moved fast, crossing into Egypt from two directions. His land army came in from the west, supported by a navy. Some of Antony's own legions were in that army. Antony had only a small force he'd managed to scrounge together that wasn't close to big enough. Even so, he rode out to meet Octavian's army, hoping he could convince his men to switch sides. Octavian's commander had his trumpeter's blow a loud fanfare to drown out his words. Antony attacked Octavian's forces and was beaten back.
0: Meanwhile, Agrippa's navy trapped Antony's remaining ships in the Alexandrian harbor by stretching a chain across the mouth and pulling it taut. Hmm. Where have we seen that before? Feel like Game of Thrones
1: Season 2? Was it Blackwater? Was Tyrion Lannister just, like, taking a play out of Agrippa's handbook?
0: I think that Tyrion Lannister was taking a play out of Agrippa's handbook. Yes! Anyway... As he returned from a humiliating defeat, Antony ran into Octavian's cavalry, managing to pursue a small group of them all the way back to the enemy camp. Antony had his soldiers shoot arrows into Octavian's camp with messages tied to them, offering 1500 denarii to any who defected to his side. Nobody took him up on it. <laughs> Are you surprised, Jen? Are you shocked? Mm-mm. <laughs> Shocker. I mean, Mark Antony is really a sinking ship at this point. He is listing to the side and going down. The rats are, are even leaving. No one's jumping on there. There was nothing particularly worth celebrating here. However, Antony was in deep delusional denial. He galloped into Alexandria as if he'd won a massive victory, swept Cleopatra into his arms and kissed her, still in his armor and dusty from the battle. Then he presented to her one of the soldiers who'd fought the most bravely. Cleopatra was gracious. She awarded the man with a golden helmet and breastplate. He politely accepted these gifts, and then that night he snuck away to join Octavian. The next
1: morning, Mark Antony sent messages to Octavian, challenging him once again to single combat. Why would he say yes to
0: that? Why?
1: I know. Octavian's answer was chilling. He shot back that there were many ways Mark Antony might die.
0: Like, I don't actually need to lift a finger to kill you, Mark Antony. Oh.
1: You are so toast. And I think that's when it finally sank in for Mark Antony that he was doomed.
0: You're toast. (laughs) He was a burnt pancake. Poor Mark Antony. We left him on the griddle too long. He's still a dick. (laughs) It's the ancient world and everyone was trash. You just have to accept that. On the eve before the final
1: battle, the partners in death held one last supper as luxurious as any that had come before. But it was hard for the diners to keep a brave face with Antony going on about his wish for a heroic death he told his slaves to pour one out for him because who knew whether tomorrow they'd be serving other masters. While he himself would be, quote, a mummy and a nothing, everybody wept. Late that night, after everyone had gone to bed, it said the sound of music, chanting, and flutes sounded throughout the city in a procession. Though there was no one singing and playing, the phantom revelry moved through the city and out the gates, as if Dionysus himself was abandoning Alexandria. And I hope just stop. That really gets me. You okay? (laughs) Okay. Okay, keep going.
0: Okay. (laughs) At dawn, Antony sent infantry on the hilltops before the city and watched as his ships sailed out into the harbor to attack the enemy. But instead of entering into battle, his ships pulled up their oars, saluted Octavian's fleet, and defected before his eyes. His cavalry followed suit almost immediately after. Once again, Antony galloped back through the gates of Alexandria, and this time, he was alone. In a haze of madness, he roared at the top of his lungs that the cause was lost, and Cleopatra had betrayed him. Cleopatra fled in fear, barricaded herself in her tomb, and sent a servant with a message telling Mark Antony that she was dead. So... I struggle with this, Jen. Why would she send this message to Mark Antony that she was dead? Because she had to know that if she told him that, he would commit suicide.
1: I mean, here's the thing, Jenny. We don't know how violent he was in this moment. We don't know how he reacted to this loss. We know that he believes Cleopatra has betrayed him. Everyone has betrayed him. There's a sense of paranoia and terror and
0: fear. And it's not the first time he's believed Cleopatra betrayed him. Like His mistrust extends even to her.
1: I mean, also, there's nothing left for her to do to prove she hasn't betrayed him. What's she going to do at this point? Last time she showed him, look, I can poison people. If I wanted you dead, you'd be dead. At this point in time, what he knows is he is dead one way or another there's no negotiating with octavian and if he really believes the woman he's abandoned everything for the woman he's come all this way for has betrayed him who knows how he reacted
0: this is a really desperate situation for cleopatra and one of the ways that she can save her children now octavian's been offering her this deal the whole time if you if you get rid of antony i'll spare you and i'll spare your kids and She might be looking at the writing on the wall and thinking, maybe it's time to take that deal. Maybe it's time to sacrifice Mark I've protected him as long as I could.
1: Yeah, longer than most people would. At this point in time, Cleopatra has to decide is it more likely that if she says she's dead that Antony will kill himself and it will give her a chance to salvage things for her children and Antony's children? Some historians suggest she was detaching her fate from his. This was part of a secret pact she'd made with Octavian. Antony had to die so she could live, or at least so her children could go on ruling in Egypt, and her children also included Antony's children. Other writers point to a larger conspiracy. Octavian's army had entered into Egypt without resistance, cities that should have fought folded. Even Antony's ship which were Cleopatra's ships, surrendered without a fight. To these writers, Cleopatra had secretly given those orders, surrendering the country to Octavian.
0: And you know, that makes sense.
1: Looking at it from that point of view, of course Antony feels like he's been abandoned by Cleopatra.
0: Right. Like maybe he was watching all this military stuff happen and thinking Cleopatra must be behind this. This must be why nobody's fighting. But on the other hand, nobody's fighting because no one will follow Antony. Yeah, because he ran off in the last big battle. Right, like there are other explanations besides Cleopatra's doing him dirty. People know a lost cause when they see one.
1: From here on out, we're going to be talking about suicide, and it's going to go on until the end of the episode.
0: It's pretty graphic, so if that is not something you'd like to listen to, here's your warning. It said that when Antony received the note that Cleo was dead, he was in his own chambers with his remaining military staff. And he was heartbroken, lamenting only that Cleopatra had proven braver than he was, that she'd had the nerve to do it before he could, but she wouldn't have to wait long. He was coming." It wasn't the first time Antony asked his soldiers, bodyguard, and friends with military experience to do him in. It had happened in Parthia when he'd been at the end of his rope. It had happened again when he would found his four remaining legions in Libya had defected to Octavian. Now, all he had was a slave named Eros who had no military training. Eros is the god of erotic love, not equipped to, to stab people in the heart. At least by the name. I mean, I don't know Eros. Maybe he really knew how to do this.
1: Maybe he was so fed up with Antony, he was like, yes, please, but it doesn't sound that way.
0: (laughs) So Antony begged Eros to do it.
1: Eros, according to Plutarch, picked up Antony's sword, but in the end turned it upon himself. Antony praised Eros for having the courage to show him the way. He then took up the bloody sword and stabbed himself in the stomach. But Antony botched the job. He fell upon a couch, writhing in pain, and pleaded with bystanders to finish him off. But everyone fled, and he lay by himself, screaming and twisting in agony, until his secretary came barging in with news. The message was wrong. Cleopatra was alive. He was ordered to bring Antony to her.
0: Somehow, with his stomach open and his guts hanging out, Mark Antony's friends and servants managed to carry him to Cleopatra's tomb. Plutarch tells us what happened next. Quote, Cleopatra would not open the doors, but showed herself at a window from which she let down ropes and cords. To these Antony was fastened, and she drew him up herself with the aid of the two women whom alone she had admitted with her into the tomb. Never... As those who were present tell us, was there a more piteous sight? Smeared with blood and struggling with death, he was drawn up, stretching out his hands to her even as he dangled in the air. For the task was not an easy one for the women, and scarcely could Cleopatra, with clinging hands and strained face, pull up the rope while those below called out encouragement to her and shared her agony.
1: Finally, Cleopatra managed to drag Mark Antony in through the window. She laid him on the floor and wept, beating and tearing at her breasts in grief. And once again, poor breasts.
0: I know. We've, we talked about this in one of our episodes. I think it was one of the Vercingetorix episodes. The phenomenon of women bearing their breasts in extreme circumstances and what that is and where that comes from and why and how, how much... We didn't really have any good answers for that. We were just very baffled by it. Anyway, returning to our story, Cleopatra wiped
1: blood off his face, called him master and husband and commander. She, quote, forgot her ills in pity for his... Antony stayed calm, he called for wine, and begged Cleopatra to do whatever she could to assure her own safety. Among Octavian's retinue, he told her to put her trust in a man named Proculius and him alone. He bid her not to weep for him, but be glad for the amazing life they'd shared. He'd had a really good run. He'd been conquered by a worthy Roman foe. It could have been a lot worse. Antony died in Cleopatra's arms.
0: The thing I love about Plutarch is that he keeps pulling up these family stories from people who knew Mark Antony or who served with Mark Antony or who were under him in some way. And he was like the grandson of people who knew Mark Antony or great grandson. I'm not exactly sure. Like, I love that. And that's why I kind of trust things that he says, although he also kind of goes on these flights of negativity about Cleopatra a lot. He talks about in that paragraph people who were there. So he was drawing from possibly witnesses. So Shakespeare and his play Antony and Cleopatra dramatizes this scene and he draws from Plutarch from the scene I had just read you from Plutarch directly and I had found this scene and I showed it to Jen and we read it to each other in rehearsal and it was just this really powerful moment so I felt like we should read it to you. How do you feel about that Jen? I'm
1: down. I mean anytime I get to talk about Shakespeare also makes me happy.
0: So um, how about it? Do you want to be Antony and I'll be Cleopatra since those are the ones we identify with? Oh, Jenny Patra, I would never take that from you. (laughs) Well, you also get the death scene. So (laughs) So we're going to start at the part where Mark Antony is brought in where Cleopatra is just trying to pull Antony up on these pulleys or on this scaffolding because I guess this mausoleum is still under construction. So she's trying to pull Mark Antony up to her window. And Charmian and Iris are her serving maids, the only two people she's allowed to be in the mausoleum with her. So that's all you, you need to know for this scene. O oh, son, burn the great sphere thou movest in. Darklings stand the varying shore or the wind. Oh, Antony, 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 help Charmian, help Iris, help, help friends below. Let's draw him hither.
1: Peace. Not Caesar's valor hath overthrown Antony, but Antony's has triumph on itself. I mean, he is so his own worst
0: enemy. Oh, Antony. I mean, I think that's such a true thing about Antony, is he's always his own worst enemy. (laughs) Point to Shakespeare. I am dying, Egypt dying, only I hear importune death awhile,
1: until of many thousand kisses the poor last I lay upon thy lips.
0: So it should be that none but Antony should conquer Antony, but woe tis so. O oh, quicker I am gone. I dare not, dear, dear my lord, pardon, I dare not, lest I be taken. Not the imperious show of the full fortune Caesar ever shall be broached with me. If knife, drugs, serpents have edge, sting, or operation, I am safe. Your wife, Octavia, with her modest eyes and still conclusion, shall acquire no honor demurring upon me. But come, come, Antony, help me, my women, we must draw thee up. Assist, good friends. Here's sport indeed, how heavy weighs my lord. Our strength is all gone into heaviness that makes the weight. Had I great Juno's power, the strong-winged Mercury should fetch thee up and set thee by Jove's side. Yet come a little, wishes were ever fools. Oh, come, come, come. And welcome, welcome, die where thou hast lived. Quicken with kissing had my lips that power, thus I would wear them out. I am dying,
1: Egypt, dying. Give me some wine and let me speak a little.
0: No, let me speak. She cuts him off. I love it. I love <laughs> it. <laughs> and let me rail so high that the false housewife fortune break her wheel, provoked by my offense. One word, sweet
1: queen. Of Caesar, seek your honor with your safety. Oh.
0: They do not go together. Gentle, hear me.
1: None about Caesar trust but Proculius.
0: My resolution and my hands I'll trust. None about Caesar the miserable change now at
1: my end, lament nor sorrow at, but please your thoughts, in feeding them with those my former fortunes wherein I lived, the greatest prince of the world, the noblest, and do now not basely die, not cowardly put off my helmet to my countrymen, a Roman by a Roman, valiantly vanquished, now my spirit is going, I can no more.
0: Noblest of men, won't die. Hast thou no care of me? Shall I abide in this dull world, which in thy absence is no better than a sty? Oh, see, my women. <sighs> the crown of the earth doth melt. My lord, Oh, withered is the garland of the war. The soldier's pole is fallen. Young boys and girls are level now with men. The odds is gone, and there is nothing left remarkable beneath the visiting moon. So, I just found that very moving.
1: It was super moving. I mean, Mark Antony is a deeply flawed individual and I will never stop saying that, but man.
0: He was a hardcore romantic. You have to love him for that. You do have to love him for that. He was so, so flawed and we definitely harp on his flaws throughout every single episode in which we talk about him, but I feel like he'll love you unto death.
1: Unless you're full of you.
0: And even then,
1: that broke his heart having to do what he did to Fulvia.
0: He was cheating on her with Cleopatra at the time, but maybe he kind of had a poly heart so he could love both of them at the same time. I don't really know. Maybe. And also,
1: he's a pancake. If he'd been back with Fulvia, he would have flipped back to that side.
0: Mark Antony loves the one he's with. I mean,
1: there's a great song about that, too.
0: Right. He'll love the one he's with unto
1: death. I do think there were many times he could have thrown Cleopatra over. Many times it behooved him to throw her over. And he didn't.
0: Came real close though. He came real close, but he didn't. Mostly because she was in the room with him. Mostly, but also could have.
1: It would have taken the a minute.
0: All he had to do was say yes instead of saying no at a certain point in time. There are all these decisions down the line of Mark Antony's decisions where this could have turned. He loved her. He
1: loved her more than was reasonable. He loved her more than was sensible.
0: He was following his heart. Absolutely. So meanwhile, one of Mark Antony's entourage managed to get his hands on the sword Antony used to kill himself and secreted it to. Octavian. Showing him the blood-covered blade, he brought the news that Antony had committed suicide. Plutarch tells us that Octavian made a big show of retreating to his tent and weeping at the news, just as Caesar had when he got the news about Pompey's murder, but he wasn't as good at faking tears as
1: Caesar. Julius Caesar would like to remind you that he did not fake tears at the death of Pompey. Pompey had been at one point in time a beloved son-in-law, a triumvir, someone who Julius Caesar had deeply respected. The young Octavian felt no such feelings towards Antony, and it would be criminal to assume that we were of a like here.
0: All right, so maybe I was a little unfair to you, Julius Caesar. I don't want to go down this whole rabbit hole, but what was the end game for Pompey? I mean, you had to have him killed—killed killed
1: or exiled, but not on a beach as he's looking to find refuge, not so demoralizing and dehumanizing, not for someone of his class, not for someone who'd done so much for Rome. The Romans would not have stood for it.
0: So it it wasn't the death in general, it was the indignity of the death.
1: The indignity of the death and the fact that Julius Caesar never had a moment to say goodbye to his dear friend, to forgive Pompey for what he'd done. He was going to get the axe, though. Very likely he would have got back. It would be impossible to keep him alive. But he could have exiled somewhere for a while and then quietly disappeared one day.
0: Oh, right. You could just send him the knife in the dark or maybe starve him to death. I mean, that's great. That's better. Starvation to death would not have
1: been what Julius Caesar would have done. That's not mercy, but a knife eventually.
0: Okay, Julius Caesar. (laughs) Julius Caesar's idea of mercy. We're moving on. So... Octavian has just retreated to his tent to cry over Antony taking a page from the Caesar playbook. No, Julius Caesar, this is not this is not an opportunity to jump back in. We've heard from you already. But, like I said, he wasn't as good as this as Julius Caesar. Maybe Julius Caesar really did feel things when he cried for Pompey. I don't know. He says he does. Don't trust anything Julius Caesar says. But Octavian sure didn't, because soon he was storming back out of his tent, waving a fistful of letters he and Mark Antony had sent back and forth. He insisted on reading these to his friends, pointing out how reasonable he'd been this whole time and how much of a rude asshat Mark Antony had been. And we've read you a letter from Mark Antony. He could be a rude asshat. See, Octavian had been driven to drive and. Antony to commit suicide, it wasn't his fault, and of course later he burned Antony's replies to his letters so that Antony's side didn't get out
1: but Octavian had more pressing business than assuaging his own guilt. Cleopatra was still locked in her flammable tomb with all her flammable treasure, and he really wanted that treasure. The man Octavian sent to talk Cleopatra down from the ledge was the one person Antony had told her she could trust, Proculius. But Cleopatra was less trusting than Antony. She refused to let Proculius in her tomb. She would speak with him only through the bolted door. Proculius tried to reassure her in general terms, but Cleopatra wanted specifics.
0: Yeah, she's not trusting this dude an inch. Uh Uh-uh. She wanted her children to be allowed to live and to rule
1: Egypt. Perculius kept things vague, swearing over and over that Octavian would take care of her and them. And Cleopatra did not budge an inch. She threatened to burn it all down.
0: She had the torch lit. It was held up high in her hands. All she had to do was drop it.
1: Absolutely, and you can't blame her here.
0: Proculius went away and came back with a friend. The friend took up the negotiation again, speaking to Cleopatra through the door. Meanwhile, Proculius put a ladder up against the building. With two servants, he climbed in through the second floor window. One of Cleopatra's two serving mates sounded the alarm, crying, Wretched Cleopatra, you were taken alive! Proculius and his men ran down the stairs to catch Cleopatra fumbling with a dagger she'd kept hidden on her hip. She was trying to kill herself. Procilius threw his arms around her, shouting that he would not let her wrong both herself and Octavian. He took her weapon and checked her clothes to make sure she had no poison on her, all the while making reassuring noises. Why rob Octavian of the opportunity to prove his mercy? He was, after all, the most agreeable and humane of commanders. Oh yeah, that
1: sounds about right.
0: Yeah. Octavian assigned servants to keep careful watch on Cleopatra night and day and make sure she didn't harm herself. Cleopatra was now on suicide watch. Cleopatra gathered herself. She asked for oils with which to prepare Antony's body for burial. Cedar and cinnamon oil and incense. She asked for two days to prepare the body. It was a small enough request. Octavian granted it. And after those days passed, Octavian paid Cleopatra a visit.
1: This would be the first time these two met in person. Honest, guileless Antony was dead, and now Cleopatra and Octavian would finally be in the room together. Two master manipulators, each with an agenda for this meeting. Octavian had secured Cleopatra's treasure at this point, but he still wanted Cleopatra to come to Rome and walk in his triumph, a major public relations coup for him. He needed Cleopatra to stay alive long enough to do that, and Cleopatra needed Octavian to believe she had no intention of committing suicide, so he'd relax her guard enough so she could.
0: There are two dueling versions of this meeting, one by Plutarch and one by Dio. They could not be more different. Both show Cleopatra and her tactics and strength in a very different light, but they also have some interesting similarities that might help us get at a truth. So, let's look at the one from Dio first. In this one, after Cleopatra prepared Mark Antony's body for burial, she was brought to the palace and allowed to stay in her own rooms with her attendants and all the accustomed luxuries, under heavy guard. For this meeting, we see the Cleopatra we know and love from her first meeting with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Just as she did with them, she stage-managing the scene to have a desired effect. Here, so Dio tells it, quote, Cleopatra prepared a splendid apartment and a costly couch and arrayed herself with affected negligence. Look, this old thing I just had it lying around. Indeed, her mourning garb wonderfully became her. She seated herself upon the couch. Beside her, she placed many images of Julius Caesar of all kinds. So all the busts of Julius Caesar that she just had lying around disassembled them in this room. That isn't creepy at all. Well, it's one of those things
1: where she's like, remember this guy, this guy? You're supposed to be like his son, right? I'm his lady, and remember, you owe something to me as a result of that.
0: And in her bosom she put, we're talking about what's in Cleopatra's bosom right now. Oh! And in her bosom she put all the letters that Caesar had sent her. When after this Octavian entered, she leapt gracefully to her feet and cried, Hail, Master, for heaven has granted you the mastery and taken it from me. But surely you can see with your own eyes how Julius Caesar looked when he visited me on many occasions. And you have heard people tell how he honored me in various ways and made me queen of the Egyptians. That you may, however, learn something about me from him himself and read the letters which he wrote me with his own hand. Well
1: played, Cleo.
0: Yeah. Octavian wasn't the
1: only person who could read letters to a captive audience in order to spin things in his favor. Cleopatra then proceeded to read Octavian Caesar's love letters to her, pausing to lament and kiss the letters. She reminded Octavian of her relationship with Caesar, of how he had honored her in life, loved her, and given her a kingdom. I mean, the thing is, Cleo, he didn't honor you in death.
0: But we're focusing on life here, Jen. On life, yes, absolutely, on the life thing, yes. Cleopatra has an agenda, okay? You could kind of see a flaw here. (laughs) I mean, she's super (laughs) persuasive, though. She is. Cleopatra bewailed her fate
1: in the silvery musical voice that had been so acclaimed, crying that she wished she'd died before Caesar. Then, turning to Octavian with melting eyes, declared, as if speaking to Julius Caesar, But in this man here, you are still alive, and while I have him, I have you. This was all intensely awkward for Octavian. He was not expecting this level of intensity. Dio says he sat stiffly beneath these impassioned speeches. He looked at the floor. He continually repeated the lines he'd memorized to tell her, which were that she should be a good cheer and keep a stout heart, for he would see to it that she suffered. Be of good cheer. Keep a stout heart. I mean, that doesn't sound like he's going to harm you at all.
0: It's just platitudes. Like he came armed with platitudes and Cleopatra's like, I'm going to make this really fucking real for you right now hmm Cleopatra was disheartened to see that Octavian was not more affected by her efforts. In the next paragraph, Dio has Cleopatra flinging herself at Octavian's feet. She had no desire to live, she wailed, and in between passionate sobs, she begged to be buried next to Antony. Again, Octavian looked awkwardly at the floor, shuffled his feet, and repeated his canned lines about how she should be of good cheer. That's a super awkward Octavian. It's not rising to the occasion here. Cleopatra saw that Octavian would not be moved, and she suspected his purpose, that he wanted her to walk in his triumph. This would, of course, be a humiliation worse than death for her, and she made up her mind she was resolved to take her own life.
1: But with Octavian, she pretended to have a change of heart. She told him that she placed her hope in him, and also in the compassion of Livia, his wife. Cleopatra promised to sail with Octavian willingly, and began to ready some jewelry to take with her as gifts for Livia and Octavia, his sister. Octavian was fooled. Confident that Cleopatra wished to live, he relaxed her guard. Not a lot. But just enough.
0: So that's Dio's account. Here's Plutarch's. And we're starting over again with Octavian coming to visit Cleopatra after she had made Mark Antony's body ready for burial. Quote, After a few days, Octavian came to talk with Cleopatra and give her comfort. She was lying on a mean pallid bed, clad only in her tunic, but sprang up as he entered and threw herself at his feet. Her hair and face were in terrible disarray. Her voice trembled and her eyes were sunken. There were also visible many marks of the cruel blows upon her bosom. In a word, her body seemed to be no better off than her spirit. Nevertheless, the charm for which she was famous and the boldness of her beauty were not altogether extinguished. They shone forth from within and made themselves manifest in the play of her features. After Octavian had bidden her to lie down and had seated himself near her, she began a sort of justification of her course, ascribing it to necessity and fear of Antony. And that's interesting because we talked about whether or not Antony became violent when she first ran to her mausoleum, and it kind of makes me wonder if that was part of their relationship. It might have been. There's nothing on that except for these two clues. We don't know. But as Octavian opposed and refuted her on every point, she quickly changed her tone and sought to move his pity by prayers as one who above all things clung to life and finally she gave him a list which she had of all her treasures.
1: And when one of her stewards showed conclusively that she was stealing away and hiding some of them, she sprang up, seized him by the hair, and showered blows upon his face. And when Octavian, with a smile, stopped her, she said, But is it not a monstrous thing? O Octavian, that when thou hast deigned to come to me and speak to me, though I am in this wretched plight, my slaves denounce me for reserving some women's adornments. Not for myself, indeed, unhappy woman that I am, but that I may make trifling gifts to Octavia and thy Livia, and through their intercession find thee me merciful and more gentle. Octavian was pleased with this speech, being altogether of the opinion that she desired to live. He told her, therefore, that he left these matters for her to manage, and that in all other ways he would give her more splendid treatment than she could possibly expect. Then he went off, supposing that he had deceived her, but rather, deceived by
0: her. So those are the two competing stories. Who knows which version is true or if either of them are, but there are a few similarities here to note which may point towards some kernels of truth. First, Cleopatra's immense charisma is not diminished by her circumstances. In Dio's account, It renders Octavian uncomfortable and speechless, even though he was the one with all the power and he came to that meeting thinking he'd have the upper hand. In Plutarch's, her appeal shone through even in her horrible state, sick and battered with grief.
1: Another similarity is that midway through the encounter, she mentions giving some treasures as a gift to Livia and Octavia, Octavian's wife and sister. This flattered and disarmed Octavian in both accounts, exactly what Cleopatra wanted.
0: And the third similarity was this. In both accounts, Octavian walked away fooled.
1: Yeah, he did. I think Octavian's emotional intelligence isn't really great.
0: I don't think so either. I think she just had to give a generally convincing performance.
1: He's like a lot of people I've met in like different commander roles. They're really good at commanding and they're not great at actually reading people.
0: I mean, I think that's something that happens when you have a lot of power, like you kind of lose some emotional intelligence because you're used to people saying yes to you and adulating you in a certain way.
1: Yeah. And you think you can read people and remember what it's like to be in their position and you you don't. Yeah. Cleopatra never believed Octavian had fallen in love with her, but she still had that power to beguile. A young man from Octavian's entourage developed a bit of a crush on Cleopatra. She asked him to keep her informed of Octavian's plans, and he did. Sometime after that meeting, he passed her a message that Octavian planned to send her and her children back to Rome within three days. Time was short.
0: Cleopatra asked Octavian for permission to pour libations for Antony one last time. He granted her request, and Cleopatra carried the urn that held Antony's ashes to his tomb. There she laid him to rest, saying, quote from Plutarch, I buried thee, but lately with hands still free. Now, however, I pour libations for thee as a captive, and so carefully guarded that I cannot either with blows or tears disfigure this body of mine, which is a slave's body, and closely watch that it may grace the triumph over thee. Do not expect other honors or libations. These are the last from Cleopatra the captive. For though in life nothing could part us, in death we are likely to change places. You, the Roman, lying buried here, while I, the hapless woman, lie in Italy out of all my innumerable ills, not one is so great and dreadful as this short time that I have lived apart from thee. Cleopatra went back to her apartments, drew a bath, and then sat down to a lavish dinner. While she was dining, a man came in from the countryside carrying a basket. The guards asked what was in it, and he opened the lid to show them the big, beautiful figs inside. Everyone remarked on how tasty they looked. The man offered some to the guards. They waved him through. Cleopatra took the basket, and gave the man a sealed tablet she'd already prepared for Octavian. She then sent off everyone except her two loyal serving women and shut the doors.
1: Octavian was dining when he received Cleopatra's message. He opened it, read it, and then stood up abruptly, rushing out of the room. The message repeated Cleopatra's request that she be buried with Mark Antony. If he hurried, he might still get there in time to stop her. But when he arrived, he pushed past the surprise guards, who were aware of nothing untoward. It was too late. The scene he came to was one that has been reproduced time and again, almost without change in the literary traditions and artistic traditions as well. Cleopatra lay dead on a golden couch, dressed in her splendid royal regalia, holding the insignia of her office.
0: One of her serving women lay at her feet, almost dead. The other, barely able to stand, was bending over her mistress's body as Octavian entered, trying to straighten the diadem on Cleopatra's brow. A fine deed this, Charmion, burst out someone in Octavian's entourage. Charmion shot back, it is indeed most fine, and befitting the descendant of so many kings. Then she fell next to Cleopatra's couch and died. Interestingly, Cleopatra's two serving women here were named Iris and Charmion. You met them briefly in the Shakespeare scene we read. Charmion was a bit more than a serving woman, though. She was actually Cleopatra. Cleopatra's chief head of state. In the most well-known version of this story, it was an asp that killed Cleopatra, hidden in the basket of figs. But even as far back as Plutarch and Dio, people have been doubting the asp story. Plutarch points out that no snake was ever found in Cleopatra's room or on her clothes, although, quote, people said they saw traces of it by the sea. I don't know what traces of a snake that you see by the sea. What is that? Like snake poop? Snake skin? (laughs) Snake tracks? I literally don't know what that means. It's got to be skin. I guess. I also think it's super important to note here that by asp, the ancients usually meant to refer to the six foot Egyptian cobra, which is not the kind of snake you can easily hide in a basket or miss in searching a room. On the other hand, even a baby one has enough poison to kill somebody, so I guess it could be a baby asp. Possible. There are also some questions about the way you die when you're bitten by an Egyptian cobra and the effect that it has in your body, and whether or not Cleopatra's body looked like it had been. Bitten by an Egyptian cobra And we go into that in more detail in Locusta the Poisoner. So if you want the technical, like, medical details about that, look there. Exactly. We're not
1: going to rehash it here. Both Plutarch and Dio suggest other methods of poison delivery, such as a comb or pin. The only marks on Cleopatra's body were two puncture wounds on her arm, barely more than scratches. If poison did go in through those wounds, it had barely broken the skin. When he saw that Cleopatra had outwitted him one last time, Octavian was enraged. He immediately brought in some of the people of the Silli, a local tribe said to be immune to snake bite and also to have the ability to suck snake poison out of a wound and discern which snake it came from. This time their skills failed and the Silli could find no answers. The mystery remains. Octavian had ordered that Cleopatra be buried with Antony in a fashion that befitted her rank. Iris and Charmian were also given regal burials.
0: So what happened after? Julius Caesar might have been hated by the Alexandrian populace, but he'd been intensely curious about their culture and history. Mark Antony had been adored by the Alexandrians and loved mingling with them as a commoner. Octavian, by contrast, wasn't interested in Egyptian customs and history, and he wasn't interested in the Egyptians, and he made sure everybody knew it. I'm sorry, like, how could you not be fascinated? No, he was such a fucking dick. Tell us how much of a dick he was, Jen. Shall I? You shall, please.
1: Octavian strutted around the city, dripping scorn. The Alexandrians offered to show him the tombs of the previous pharaohs. Perhaps they meant an unforgettable expedition to the Valley of the Kings or a foray to the pyramids. I mean, yes! Who doesn't want to see that?! I know. Even in this time period, those would be just marvels.
0: It's on my bucket list, for sure. Octavian
1: scoffed at the opportunity
0: because dick. Because he literally couldn't be more of an asshole here. He said he hadn't come
1: there to see a bunch of moldy corpses.
0: Dick! asshole. Sorry, it's unfair to dicks to
1: call him a dick. It's unfair to
0: assholes to call him an asshole. I hope my asshole is a better asshole than Octavian in general as a human. All it does is <laughs> is spew shit, but at least it's into the toilet. Oh my god, I'm with the scatological humor. It's time that I elevate my game.
1: Ms. Williamson, please elevate your game. Caesar. you're complicit in this.
0: You pick this guy. <laughs> he's not, you know he's not gonna say anything to that. Crickets. Asshole! When he was offered the chance to see the Apis bull, an important sacred animal to the Egyptians, Octavian turned that down too, saying he worshipped gods, not cattle. Oh,
1: he's just going out of his way to fucking demoralize their culture and be a worst. Oh, he's just a fucking colonizing asshole. Not that all the Romans weren't, but ugh.
0: he paid a visit to the tomb of Alexander the Great, the biggest colonizing asshole of them all, I guess, just as Julius Caesar and Mark Antony once did and carelessly broke off Alexander's nose.
1: I don't think he fucking did carelessly. I think he was like, I'm taking that with me. I'm Octavian the goddamn great.
0: He's like, I can break this if I want. What are you going to do about it? we're getting to the end of the episode and this is really sad and i'm really sad i have to read this bit i would hug you if we weren't an ocean away right now a whole ocean okay anyway
1: cleopatra's death was the end of egypt as an independent kingdom in the ancient world henceforth it was a roman province and a very special one because it was rome's richest province and the source of all the grain. it was considered too dangerous to fall into anyone else's hands and it was considered a crown domain a private property of the emperor himself other senators needed special permission to go there i'm gonna take a quick detour because when we recorded the ancient world's dark family the first episode germanicus the manicus our blue-eyed prince our golden god So one of the things that I got really bent around the axle was you couldn't enter into Egypt without the emperor's permission. And this was a thing that set off like another feud between Germanicus and Tiberius because Germanicus did go into Egypt to do something, I think, with green. And I was like, I didn't understand where that came from. And actually, it was a law Augustus had passed, and it comes from right here.
0: Yeah, and Augustus is Octavian. He changed his name yet again to Augustus.
1: We're almost at the end, and I've had way too much wine now. But the thing that really like gets to me all is Dramaticus went there because he wanted to see where his grandfather
0: was defeated in battle. And his grandfather was who, Jen?
1: His grandfather was Mark Antony.
0: Yeah. Because this is the Julian-Claudian dynasty. So after Cleopatra's death, Octavian went on a money grab. He scooped up all of Cleopatra's treasury It was said a river of gold and precious gems flowed through Rome at his triumph. He sent men throughout Alexandria exacting heavy fines and taxes on the populace. When a proper pseudo-legal pretext couldn't be found, they simply took. The going rate was two-thirds of everything everyone owned. It all went into Octavian's coffers. Most of Mark Antony's surviving close friends were sentenced to death. So anyone who was a member of the partners in death, Octavian did his best to erase Mark Antony from history. He removed all statues of Mark Antony in Egypt and passed an ordinance that no one could transact business on Mark Antony's birthday, January 14th. It was declared an unlucky day the Senate passed a decree that no one could ever give the names Mark and Antony together in the same name. I mean, it's a good thing Mark Antony went around naming things and people after himself because now there's a a rule against that.
1: Cleopatra's statues, though, were allowed to stay in Alexandria. There were several reasons. First, Cleopatra was strongly associated with Isis, and going around removing statues of a popular goddess seemed like a great way to incite a riot. Also, a friend of Cleopatra's bribed Octavian over 2,000 talents to let the statues stay. We don't know if it was talents of gold or silver or... But... Big
0: difference!
1: (laughs) Apparently it was a small fortune. Or a big fortune. Or a big fortune, we don't know. About 17 years after the death of Cleopatra and Antony, Octavian, now the Emperor Augustus, completed construction on the Caesarium, the immense temple dedicated to Julius Caesar. He rededicated it to his own imperial cult. The Caesareum had a storied history. Approximately 400 years after it was completed, it was made the headquarters of Cyril of Alexandria, a leading figure in early Christianity. The mathematician and philosopher Hypatia was murdered in this building by an angry mob in 415 AD. Parts of the building continued to stand until the 19th century, which is really impressive.
0: During construction, Cleopatra had the obelisks we now know as Cleopatra's needles, three massive obelisks that were more than 1,200 years old and Cleopatra. Cleopatra's time, brought from the cities of Luxor and Heliopolis to adorn the temple. But they were never installed, and they lay in the sand at the temple's feet until they were dug up in the 1800s and sent as diplomatic gifts for various reasons to Paris, London, and New York. You can still see them in those cities today.
1: It's said that the remaining massive pearl earring, twin of the one Cleopatra had dissolved in the most expensive dinner party ever, was broken in half, and each half installed in the ears of the statue of Venus, set in the Pantheon in Rome.
0: So the Pantheon was built in 113 AD over an older temple that was commissioned by Agrippa during the reign of Augustus, who was also Octavian. And I tried to track down whether this statue of Venus that they're talking about was in fact the statue commissioned by Julius Caesar back in 46 BC, and whether the Pantheon theon or its predecessor was where the statue had wound up. I couldn't find anything definite. I did find, though, that Octavian allowed the statue of Cleopatra that Caesar had set up in the forum to stand.
1: How magnanimous, Octavian. Isn't that nice? So what happened to the children of Antony and Cleopatra? Just before the final battle, Antony threw a coming-of-age party for his oldest son and Cleopatra's, Antillus and Caesarean. These boys fared the worst. Antillus was probably dead before Cleopatra was. With Antony barely cold and still lying in Cleopatra's tomb, Antillus was betrayed by his tutor for the sake of a jewel the boy wore on his neck. Antillus fled to the Caesareum to take refuge, but he was dragged out by Octavian soldiers pleading for his life. They beheaded him on the temple steps, ignoring his pleas. The tutor took the jewel. He was later crucified for the crime.
0: Cleopatra had sent Caesarean out of town weeks ago when she started to realize her cause was lost. She'd sent him on a ship to India with his tutor and a small fortune in wealth so he could start over. Caesarean ought to be safe. But Caesarean was also betrayed by his tutor, who persuaded him to return to Egypt because 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 Octavian had promised to set him up to rule. But Octavian had made no such promise. Caesarion was executed, possibly by strangulation. That left three remaining children, the twins, Cleopatra Selene and Alexander Helios, and their little brother, Ptolemy Philadelphus. Octavian took them to Rome and made them walk in his triumph. It's said the golden chains they had to wear were too heavy to walk in, and they drew a lot of Roman sympathy.
1: It would have looked terrible for Octavian to have them executed. Instead, he gave them to his sister Octavia to raise, because of course, what else does Octavia have to do. Along with Antony's other children, Julius Antonius, his other son with Fulvia, his two daughters with Octavia, both called Antonia, and Octavia's three other children with her first husband, Marcellus.
0: Let's, like, look at the count of children living in Octavia's house now. Antony's younger son with Fulvia, who survived, Julius Antonius, that's one. His two daughters with Octavia, Antonia and Antonia, that's two. (laughs) That's three total. Octavia's three other children with her first husband, Marcellus, that's six, And then Cleopatra and Antony's children, Cleopatra Selene, Alexander Helios, and Ptolemy Philadelphus. That is nine children in total living with Octavia. Although I I will say that some of the older kids, I'm not sure exactly when they married because they married Mafion, you know, so some of them might be married and living in their spouses' households at this point, but nine children in total. That is a big, full house.
1: The thing I love about Octavia and her two daughters, both the Antonius, they later become the badass grandma, Antonia the Younger, I believe, who we talk about again in our ancient world Stark family. And they learn this in the house of Octavia because Octavia was around a while, didn't get exiled. She dealt with Augustus in the face that you kind of just want to punch, but no, you shouldn't, but do. So, you know, they had to have some skills. Yeah. So it's said Octavia raised Antony's children as attentively as if they were her own. Sounds like she's a decent human being and wouldn't take out the sins of their parents on children.
0: That's pretty nice of her, considering that she's had all of this crap dumped in her lap. Absolutely.
1: The daughter, Cleopatra Selene, was given in marriage sometime around the age of 15 to King Juba II of Numidia, who is about 22. I mean, this is not the worst age difference we will see on this podcast.
0: Because usually it's like 13-year-olds marrying 50-year-olds. It's fucking horrible. God. Cleopatra Selene's
1: two brothers, Alexander Helios and Ptolemy Philadelphus, had their lives spared by Octavian as a wedding present, and we hear nothing more of them after that.
0: I mean that is a pretty ominous wedding present number one (laughs) number two the fact that Nothing is heard about them after that it has been interpreted by modern scholars as they both died somehow. We don't know how. It's a mystery, but they're probably both dead not long after that. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. Juba the second's father, King Juba the First, had fought against Julius Caesar. You remember him, he was the one with the untrained elephants. We talk about him in one of our Caesar episodes. And also in a war elephant episode. War
1: elephant fell.
0: Yeah. Big war elephant fail. Juba II had also been made to walk in a Roman triumph as a child as a result of that elephant fail. He and Cleopatra Selene had a lot in common, and they seemed to have had a happy marriage. The couple was sent to rule Mauritania, a new Roman territory. They named their capital Caesarea. It's now Churchill in Algeria. Cleopatra Selene played a strong role in the politics of the region, establishing policies that helped the new province grow wealthy and successful. She transformed her city into a place of art and learning, building a beautiful library there. She maintained a strong connection to her mother's people. It's said she had a thing for collecting Ptolemaic busts. I mean, I guess, like, collecting
1: a Ptolemaic bust is definitely better than gifting people body parts, which was also a Ptolemaic thing.
0: Yeah, I hope she didn't gift people body parts. <laughs> I can't say that she didn't. That was her language
1: of love. Cleopatra Selene ruled with her husband for many years and had two children, a boy and a girl. She may have lived to the age of 65 centuries later, Queen Zenobia of Palmyra would claim to be descended from her. Although that may have been propaganda, but I'm going with it. We're not sure. And we talk about Queen Zenobia in Amazons, Warrior Queens and Generals, and I love that episode.
0: Octavian, who later became Augustus and transformed Rome from Republic into Empire, may have tried to erase Mark Antony for good. But in the story that's come down to us through time, Octavian comes off as the villain. It's Mark Antony and Cleopatra we sympathize with, two people who loved, fought, and died together, and who really tried. Try though he might, Octavian couldn't control that story. It shattered his masterful propaganda machine, inspiring the world's greatest writers, actors and actresses, artists and musicians for more than 2,000 years. We hope that somewhere, feasting among the gods where they belong, Mark Antony and Cleopatra are having the last laugh. So that's it
1: for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, catch up with us on social at Ancient HistFan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook.
0: If you want to listen to more new episodes in the meantime, check out our Patreon. We're running exclusive bonus content for Patreon subscribers where we go down rabbit holes we didn't get to address in our regular episodes.
1: Right now, we've got some episodes about pirates. Julius Caesar has come back from the dead to school the creators of Game of Thrones on how to run a battle against zombies.
0: And we have an episode up about Lepidus. Lepidus is, what is it called, Jen? It's called Lepidus's very own episode. The Lepisode. And
1: we tell the story of King Herod and Cleopatra and why these two hated each other.
0: It's our first mini arc. It's two parts. Herod and Cleopatra wouldn't touch you with a barge pole. Because guys, we
1: can't even stick to writing a mini-sode.
0: They have to be longer than is normal for anyone. It's our fault we blame ourselves. Actually, I blame me because I'm the one who wrote all the mini-sodes so far. Patreon membership starts at just $2 a month. And you can find the link on our
1: homepage at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or at patreon.com forward slash ancienthistoryfangirl.
0: And we have some Patreon members to thank, by the way. Krista Taubert, thank you so much. If you're not ready to subscribe for something monthly, we totally get it. We also have a Ko-Fi account where you can kick us a few bucks just to show your support on a one-time basis. This podcast isn't free to produce or keep going, and every little bit of support helps.
1: Or you can just leave us a nice review. They really help keep us going. They're great morale boost. They help in the algorithms, and they help us get seen by other people. If you're not the sort of person who likes to write on the internet,
0: I feel you. Tell a friend tell
1: too. Word of mouth is also really powerful magic.
0: Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, and we'll be back in two weeks.